Hello, my name's Michael Desch. I'm the Brian and Janelle Brady Director of the Notre Dame International Security Center at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to our first episode of Outside the Box. My partner in crime in this enterprise is former Senator, former Secretary of the Navy, former Democratic presidential candidate, former Marine officer, still current author of many books and articles, Jim Webb. Uh, Jim, uh, welcome to uh, the Notre Dame International Security Center, where we've added uh, to your many titles uh, the title of uh, Distinguished Fellow. In fact, we're uh, pleased to uh, welcome you as Endisk's uh, first distinguished fellow. Um, and it's really a pleasure uh, to uh, be with you to uh, launch this podcast uh, series. Why don't you say well, a little bit uh, about uh, why you thought uh, we should name it Outside the Box? Well, one of the reasons I was uh, really enthusiastic about coming to work with the people at Notre Dame is that there is a a collective uh, interest here in uh, thinking about foreign policy, national security policy, in in a in a way that could challenge the uh, sort of the prevailing orthodoxy that seems to uh, permeate so much of this debate uh, in inside Washington. And you know, we're what we're looking at in in that sense is really a, a sort of an informal establishment uh, when it comes to the uh, the evolution of our national security policy and so uh, the term outside the box as i think you know mike is uh, used a lot in uh, in government in the military in corporate america to to uh, try to find people who can uh, challenge uh, constructively the uh, prevailing uh, consensus opinions that, and uh, you know, sort of normal thought processes that that uh, seem to uh, infect some of the uh, bureaucracies, and so what I thought we would do in in uh, this series that we were putting together is to is to examine uh, the people, the policies, uh, the continuity and the future of our country in terms of uh, those types of issues. So what do you think? Well, I'm a college professor, and I have been for most of my adult life. So uh, I've been outside the Washington box and uh, outside the establishment uh, pretty much from the get-go. So one could say um, that I'm sort of stuck here. But, you know, you've got the, uh, you know, the sort of pedigree uh, going back to uh, the Naval Academy and uh, your distinguished service in the Marine Corps uh, during the Vietnam War, where if you wanted to play the uh, inside the Beltway game, uh, you could do it. Um, and yet, uh, you know, here you are with me outside the box. Uh, well, what, you know, what soured <laughs> you on the uh, 
on the on the inside of the box. I've, I've, I have never aspired to be uh, in, inside the prevailing uh, establishment structure. I've you know my life, my professional life has alternated between writing and journalism, which is about as far outside the box as you can get. You know, you can be inside the beltway and outside the box, and you can be inside academia and 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 uh, not be outside the box. In fact, in terms of turnstile government, a lot of the, the uh, turnstile uh, process can take place also in, in academia. I was a, a fellow at, at Harvard in 1992 in the Institute of Politics, and I wouldn't exactly call the thought processes that I was observing there uh, outside. What well, we, don't, what don't we judge all is, of uh, academia by Harvard. <laughs> no, I'm I just mean, saying, that's, you know, you know the brutal tyranny of low I expectations. Was, <laughs> I was attracted to uh, what was going on here at Notre Dame because it is a place where you're doing independent thinking. And, uh, and this is uh, this, this podcast, I think, is a, is a good way for us to uh, uh, demonstrate some of some of those dis- uh, discussions and, and debate. You know, American foreign policy uh, has kind of been trying to find its way forward ever since the end of the Cold War. There were people who thought that this was the end of, uh, you know, any, any sort of, with the Cold War, it was the end of this sort of bilateral, high-level international competition anymore that was going to be one superpower, it was going to be the United States, and how would we use that sort of power around the world? And, of course, that's never been uh, the, tr- the, the truth in history. And it's never been the truth since the end of the Cold War. And I think our our foreign policy apparatus, uh, the establishment, if you would, uh, has has sort of had a cooling effect among among their uh, their peer groups uh, by group consensus and not wanting to uh, offend uh, and to to make to make sure people understand. What we're talking about when we say uh, an establishment, uh, if you look at uh, the uh, the high-level uh, participants in, in American foreign policy inside the Beltway, uh, there's not that much difference between Democrats and Republicans in, inside this structure. There are people who uh, are, serve in government when one, whichever party they have, have chosen to affiliate with uh, is in power and when that party isn't in power, they move to the think tanks principally, but also into lucrative uh, positions in, in uh, corporate America and advising and these sorts of things. And so what, uh, what I think we've seen is something of a, like a, uh, an unwillingness to, to challenge thought that is going against the grain. I, we saw this in Iraq. Uh, when it was very clear from the very outset to, to a lot of people, and I put myself in that category, that this could be a huge strategic blunder that would empower Iran and also in the long term empower China. <clears throat> and uh, we're, we're looking at the results of that right now. This was a policy that was supported very heavily by the, the uh, establishment and inside uh, the Beltway. We saw it in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, with respect to uh, how mission creep took over what we were doing. When we first started in Afghanistan early on, and I was there right about when this started to change in 04 as a journalist, uh, it, the, the idea was maneuver warfare, uh, keep our, keeping our units mobile 
to, to directly go against potential terrorist targets. And it ended up being this monstrosity of a nation building in a nation that doesn't really want to be built. And they have proved that over the last 2000 years. We saw it very, very clearly in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a predictably disastrous way in Libya when I, when I was in the, the Senate, when the uh, Obama administration sort of circumvented the legislative process, uh, went in via NATO and, and some of these collective groups, and the country is torn apart right now as, as a result. And a lot of the weaponry that was in uh, the, uh, you know, the armories and these sorts of things uh, in, in Libya scattered all over the region. And we've seen it in China uh, in, in the way that the very important sovereignty issues uh, in terms of Chinese expansionism have been downplayed because of the, the feeling that the economic relationship between our two countries uh, is, is the more important part. And I would say it's an equally important thing to be looking at. So, um, and, you know, frankly, uh, we, we can talk about this later, but there is a certain extent of that in the Iran nuclear deal and also in how we've dealt with the, the Paris climate change. So um, what we saw in the Trump administration, by the way, I mean, there, I, I think that the, some of the, the, accomplishments of the administration took place because uh, Trump actually pretty much ignored the uh, uh, establishment part of uh, foreign policy mechanism to the, the anger and the chagrin of uh, certain Republicans who were thinking if a Republican was elected, they would get in. But in, in time, we're going to see that particularly, I think, the way that they stood up to the sovereignty issues in China uh, and attempted to drawdown forces in, in Iraq and Afghanistan will be looked at favorably by historians. So just to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, wrap up uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the larger philosophy of what we're, we're trying to do with this. It, your point about the box is that it's not a place, it's a state of mind. Um, and uh, to, you know, transition to, uh, you know, the other analogy that we're using uh, inside the box is where the establishment lives, particularly um, the foreign policy establishment. Um, and it seems to be uh, still sort of running the show uh, the way uh, it wanted to, uh, you know, during the uh, period uh, after the Second World War um, until the end of the Cold War, whether um, the uh, those policies um, are still relevant for the world after uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, and so broader thinking uh, about American foreign policy and American national security policy uh, seems, uh, you know, uh, pretty uh, important at this point. Uh, given how much the world has changed uh, since the uh, the early 1990s, um, so that uh, brings us uh, to uh, maybe uh, a little bit about our format before we get to uh, discussion uh, of the uh, Biden administration. Let me uh, let me be and, real clear on one point, Mike. Before we do that, just from what you just said, and and that is, I I think it's important to say when we talk about 
you know, inside the box versus outside the box is the way we're addressing this. There are a lot of really, really fine people who are groomed diplomats who are serving the country in, in, both, in both administrations and will be serving the, uh, the country in, in the Biden administrations. It's not, it's not a knock on, on uh, personal qualities. What, what we want to be talking about is how these individuals and moving into the Biden administration, uh, how, how they will work with the president and how they might be willing to think differently. And that's what we would be able to offer here, I think, is uh, some, some ways to think differently about foreign policy that are outside the way that's not being discussed. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, the vision that I think we share for this podcast uh, is uh, not unusual in other walks of life. For example, if you are a business owner and you're having some issues or even you want to uh, improve the way your business operates, you don't try to do it yourself. You bring in uh, some outside consultants, uh, some people with a fresh perspective. Uh, who try to take a look at the same stuff you've been looking at, you know, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, um, and see if uh, they see it uh, a little bit differently. Uh, well, like what, also, well, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, please. Well, also, the, the governmental structure uh, in, in terms of high-level policymaking, and actually high-level in the military, too, uh, sometimes causes people to pull their punches when they know that there might be a different way. And that's a distinction between what you just said about a business, uh, a business person. A lot of times, say when you get to be a three-star flag officer and you're looking at your career pattern, or if you're holding a high position in government and you're thinking, what am I going to do when I leave? Who am I going to work with? Uh, you know, who, who is going to employ me? And how do I position myself if I want to come back in? That can cause people to hedge uh, strong opinions in order to go along with the, the decisional process that seems to be occurring. And this is why it's so important to have good, constructive, outside viewpoints aired. I could see that when I, I spent five years in the Pentagon. I could see it when I was in there. I spent 10 years uh, on Capitol Hill, four as a committee council and, and six as a, as a United States senator. And it's really important to have these alternate views aired so that they can encourage people to uh, think outside the box or agree with something that's outside the box. Yeah, I mean, when, when you were on the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, when you would uh, invite people to testify on an issue or a piece of legislation, uh, or a budget request or something like that, you know, you'd certainly want uh, the experts uh, from the uh, uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense or from the services uh, to have their say, but you also want to uh, have uh, an outside perspective, you know, uh, bring people in uh, who aren't working for an administration that's committed to a particular policy, just to, you know, hear uh, a different view uh, on the matter at hand. I it's, think ex that it's extremely important for, for people who are in, in positions in the Congress and political appointees, even in places like the Pentagon, uh, to hear outside views. Because by the time uh, a, a witness 
from the Department of Defense or Department of State or whatever is testifying in front of the Congress. Those views have been uh, coordinated and they have uh, been required most of the time to fit into an administrative administration position. So it's healthy to have excellent uh, writing, journalism, editorials that might be contrary to what is being discussed to help educate members of Congress and, and other uh, political leaders. So I, I think that, you know, this rationale for uh, the outside the box perspective is, uh, is very compelling. Matter of fact, so compelling could probably stand on its own. But I, I want to throw out one other particular rationale uh, for thinking differently today about American foreign policy and American national security policy that's unique to our own recent history. Uh, and I, I don't think it's controversial to say that the United States won the Cold War. Um, you know, we made lots of mistakes along the way. There are lots of things that we could have done better. But the truth of the matter is, is, uh, you know, by 1989, uh, you know, one side had basically crapped out. That was the Soviet Union. Um, and, uh, you know, the United States and its allies um, had prevailed uh, in a struggle that a lot of people uh, worried uh, either we weren't going to be able to, you know, make maintain uh, the long haul, or uh, we were going to end up with, uh, with World War III. And I, I think it's a great thing that we uh, won the Cold War, but I think there is a downside uh, to victory. And the downside to victory is it's very hard to be uh, self-critical. You sort of think that if it worked during the Cold War, uh, why wouldn't it work uh, in the post-Cold War uh, world. Um, and some things uh, that characterized American strategy during the Cold War are probably uh, applicable today. But it's not clear to me uh, that all of the lessons that we learned from the Cold War uh, are uh, relevant uh, to the world that we face today. And so the problem is, how do you break out of this mindset that, you know, 70 years of a particular approach to the world uh, won the Cold War. Why wouldn't we, you know, without thinking much about it, continue that same approach for the next 70 years? And I think if there is one thing that characterizes the establishment mindset, whether it's in uh, the precincts of the New York Council on Foreign Relations uh, or um, in the halls of Congress uh, today, with very few exceptions, is that uh, America's posture in the world uh, in 2020 should be pretty much what it was um, in 1989. Um, and uh, it seems to me that that ought to be a question to be uh, interrogated and debated rather than uh, an unstated assumption uh, that we ought to just operate uh, on autopilot. What do you think about that? Victory um, is a bad thing, at least in terms of creative thinking. 
I think that once once the Soviet Union dissolved, a lot of changes occurred around the world as as a result. Uh, just like once Japan and the the, uh, the World War II entities dissolved, uh, Asia dramatically changed in terms of colonialism and this sort of thing, and it required not uh, not a victory dance, but I think our leading minds had to struggle with how we should articulate our interests around the world in a, in a way that matched the changes that were going on. And this is still a work in progress, frankly. And I think we, we made a number of, of mistakes. Uh, one of them in, in terms of NATO, well, let's uh, just do a quick thumbnail on, you know, NATO was originally uh, established on the military sense in 1949 when we put six divisions into uh, Western Europe in order to counter what the Soviets were, were doing. Uh, it ended up as a large alliance after the end of the Cold War. It essentially turned also into a protectorate where we started bringing countries along the buffer zone of Russia, the former Soviet Union, uh, and uh, putting them uh, in the NATO alliance, but basically they're protectorates. So the, the functions of NATO changed. Uh, I'm not sure that it's the same entity that it was uh, before in terms of uh, the the ability to say, okay, we're a member of NATO. If one of these countries is uh, attacked or if they want to define it as an attack, do we have an, an absolute uh, necessity under the NATO agreement to go into that country and, and say that we ourselves were attacked? Also, we've seen the use of NATO in places like Libya and, and Afghanistan uh, when it basically was a North Atlantic trans, uh, North, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, we've seen it in terms of how we define our policy in uh, Asia, in Pacific Asia, where uh, we had uh, really em helped empower China in its economic growth at a time when the Soviet Union was very powerful. When I was Secretary of the Navy on any given day, there were 25 Soviet combatants at Cameron Bay Vietnam, the Soviet Navy was the largest Navy in the Pacific at that time. Uh, and it was in our national self-interest that we sort of encouraged China to, to increase its national uh, economic and, and other uh, strength and other growth in order to help balance that out. Then all of a sudden the Soviet Union collapsed and China was on a roll that we had in many ways uh, monetized. <laughs> With our, with our businesses, et cetera. And you particularly see it in, in the Middle East where we've been fumbling really ever since I was Secretary of the Navy when we, we uh, shifted toward Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war uh, in, in a Persian Gulf uh, crisis or we made it a crisis. Uh, and we have been fumbling ever since in terms of finding the right way to assert our national security interest and, and assist our friends. So it's, it's been a work in progress. And I think what we're seeing now, and I, this is something I wanna ask you about, but I, I, uh, you know, I've been looking at the uh, news articles that have been written about the national security uh, or the foreign policy appointees that President-elect Biden has, has chosen. Uh, there's some controversy uh, or criticism that you always see in, in editorials that uh, these are people who, uh, uh, if not supported, certainly implemented a lot of the uh, policies 
that characterized the issues that we just talked about, particularly in terms of the Middle East and the sovereignty issues in China. And it occurs to me uh, when looking at this that there are, there are two different pieces of govern, governing at work here. Uh, the first is management style. And I, one of the things that I said at the very beginning, and I wrote a little piece in the Wall Street Journal on this, uh, at the very beginning of the Trump administration was one of the key elements would be, could he put together an administration coming not only from the outside, but from his professional background? Can you, can you populate an entire administration. It's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do that most people from the outside don't understand. And so I see these people in terms of uh, President-elect Biden's management style as people that he knows, uh, that he has a long history of working with, that he knows he can trust. Uh, and that's a characteristic of the governing style that you typically see, and, and I think in, in, in a positive way, a lot of people who go into uh, political office and understand the federal bureaucracy. On the other hand, the question, <laughs> the second question is, what kind of policy decisions are they going to recommend or, or will President-to-be Biden tell them which uh, foreign policy decisions he wants to alter? How is the, the policy side going to work? So on the one hand, we have management. On the other hand, we have policy. And I'm and I want to get your thoughts. What do you think about these uh, appointments? Well, uh, that's a uh, uh, big, uh, big agenda. But that's the uh, rest of our uh, discussion for uh, today. So I'm I'm happy to uh, to hop into it. I mean, I I think what's interesting uh, about the uh, the Biden administration, and I I think it sort of speaks volumes for the, uh, the larger problem uh, of establishment foreign policy is, you know, on the one hand, I think there is a lot of relief uh, among, uh, you know, at least the majority of Americans and, and many people uh, overseas, particularly in Europe, uh, that they're gonna get a more traditional uh, presidential administration. and traditional in two senses. One is uh, it's going to be, you know, back to uh, diplomacy and sort of normal uh, presidential comportment in a way we haven't seen uh, over the last four years. Uh, And I guess I I wouldn't mind uh, a little bit of that uh, myself. But the other part of it is that uh, it's going to involve you know, and the uh, president-elect Biden, I think, has telegraphed this pretty clearly with his uh, initial foreign policy uh, appointments. It, it's going to be a return to uh, business as usual. And, and let's take NATO, which I, I think um, is a, a good example uh, of the, uh, you know, the larger problem of uh, American foreign policy being sort of on, uh, on autopilot. Um, I think the, uh, the president-elect and uh, a number of the uh, most important people that he's going to put up uh, for a senior uh, position in his administration uh, in terms of foreign policy uh, are committed to 
multilateralism, are committed to NATO, uh, are committed uh, to an activist uh, role for the United States in various parts of the world, not so much because they've thought through uh, whether uh, this is the best for American foreign policy uh, in the year of our Lord 2020. Um, but rather, it's it's what they know. Uh, and you think about, uh, you know, President-elect Biden uh, was in the Senate for 42 years. Is that right? Um, he was elected that, when he was 29. So now he's yeah, just turned 78. So you can subtract 12 from that. Yeah. And uh, he, so he's he, and then uh, eight years as uh, as vice president most of which uh, was in a very different uh, period uh, in terms of uh, world politics. Um, and NATO for him, you know, I think is a, a comfortable institution, um, as it is for uh, a lot of people. Um, but, you know, I thought your uh, uh, remarks about NATO uh, a few minutes ago, you know, were sort of right on target. I mean, where did we go in 1989 uh, from NATO as the bulwark to defend Western Europe to NATO now uh, being an institution to manage a lot of the post-Soviet space? Uh, it happened, but it's not clear to me that it happened uh, as a result uh, of a really uh, well-articulated and thoughtful debate uh, about what we thought NATO could do uh, and uh, what we wanted to, uh, to achieve in those areas. Um, so, you know, he, he's likely to nominate uh, Tony Blinken, a longtime uh, aide uh, as Secretary of State. Uh, you know, Tony Blinken will be probably in a way uh, Madeleine Albright and uh, Hillary Clinton uh, redux in terms of uh, you know liberal internationalist uh, institutionalist multilateral uh, multilateralist uh, approach to uh, foreign policy. Uh, if Jake Sullivan uh, is his national security advisor, you know this is going to be uh, in a way the third uh, Obama term. Uh, if not, you know, the third uh, Bill Clinton uh, term from the 1990s. Um, and so in a way, it's comfortable because, you know, we're moving back to, uh, you know, uh, something we know. But on the other hand, I can't get over a sort of nagging sense in my mind that, you know, we're moving in these directions uh, out of a sense of habit or inertia or comfort rather than a really clear-eyed sense of, uh, you know, what's the world look like today uh, and what should America's role in that world be? I mean, do you see any evidence, Jim, of uh, new thinking or outside-the-box thinking uh, in the Biden administration? Well, I, I think that will... Uh be a good question to be raised during confirmation hearings <laughs> and, this, and I'm sure there'll be people who are asking hard questions and to, and to see how they will answer them with respect to the policies that as I said they well they who certainly among your former Senate colleagues um, are, are going to uh, ask those questions do you 
Okay, so uh, they're going to they're going to get some some pretty interesting questions, I think, uh, during during confirmation hearings. Uh, I think that the the diplomatic community around the world will respond favorably to uh, these these individuals. They are they are well groomed, as as you would uh, as one would want to put it. Uh, the question really is going to be how. Uh, how hard do they want to look at different types of, of uh, approaches? And they're going to be a chance for uh, Mike, for you and me to bring people on this show, ask, ask these sorts of questions in a, in a lot of different uh, areas, including uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord, um, many, many, many. Uh, you know, it, but when, when the thing you mentioned about NATO, now, first of all, we should be we should be, have a clear understanding. I hope that NATO is valuable in a certain sense. It, it connects the United States to to Europe. That was one of the big reasons that it it continued for so many years, uh, and that we spent so much of our own national treasure to to make sure that these, those connections remained. But I think we've we've gotten a little out of the box when it comes to uh, how we. Uh, how uh, different administrations have used these groups to uh, sort of skirt the traditional methods of uh, of uh, uh, approving the use of military force around the world. Libya is a classic example of that. Uh, we never even got a debate in the Senate on Libya. It was moved forward as a, a fig leaf NATO operation. They got a vote in the UN Security Council where there were a lot of abstentions. <laughs> they said it get negative votes. Well, they got a lot of abstentions, but we moved forward in that sense. Um, so uh, the 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 configuration of, of NATO or the the, uh, the way that NATO is used, I think, is fair to be on the table. And at the same time, let's remember all the all the flack that. Uh, Donald Trump got for starting off by saying America first, you know, he's going to look at America first. I think that term was probably misunderstood by a lot of people because, uh, you know, uh, President Trump didn't speak in a normal government speak when he dropped things on the table. He used tweets, he used all this other stuff. But I think it's a truism when we look at our national security and the interests around the world to define those security interests. And one, that was a big mistake that we made in the Middle East. We did not clearly define how we could put our national security interests at work in a responsible way to solve the challenges that were in that region. And that's how we ended up with hundreds of thousands of troops over there, places like Afghanistan, wandering around, taking casualties, not clearly knowing what, you know, what what the job was other than to defend each other and, and to carry out what was right in front of them. So uh, we will see, we will see how um, this new group uh, can, can handle these challenges and bring us into a responsible place. And also, by the way, it's gonna take a lot of, uh, of courage and in, in, the, in the true sense of a national courage for us to work out the right sort of relationship that we need to have with China. Some of that's economic. Whenever you, you see people writing about this and at the, at the top echelons and, and uh, international, uh, international sections and newspapers, magazines, they seem to focus heavily on the, on the, uh, the economic side, the trade side. 
But clearly what you're seeing in the region, and I've been talking about it for 20 years, is the, the notion of sovereignty that China has been carefully eroding in Shinkaku Islands, up, uh, uh, not too far from Okinawa, the, Ryuk the Ryukyus, uh, under Japanese administration, uh, and on the South China Sea, two million square kilometers in the South China Sea that they directly annexed in 2012, making it a, a, literally a Chinese prefecture. And the, the response of the Obama administration at that time was, we are not going to take a position on sovereignty issues. When you don't take a position on those types of sovereignty issues, you are taking a position. You are allowing uh, China to do what it wants to do through bilateral ways, uh, rather than trying to bring them into a uh, solution in, in terms of multilateral solutions in that part of the world. So those are the kinds of things that I hope we can see good questions when these people come up for confirmation hearings and also, uh, you know, uh, courageous applications of national security policy. So, Jim, uh, we've probably got about uh, 15 minutes or so uh, left, and we should probably end by uh, talking uh, a little bit about uh, what listeners can expect from us uh, down the road. Um, but one question uh, that we might want to chew on a little bit is uh, what we think uh, the uh, of the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy uh, is likely to continue uh, in under uh, a Biden administration. And I was thinking about this. Um, Tom Friedman, the foreign affairs uh, columnist for the uh, New York Times, uh, had a long piece, I guess, on Sunday reporting uh, the results of a hour-long conversation uh, he had with uh, President-elect Biden. And President-elect Biden, uh, I think, uh, not accidentally uh, associated himself uh, with uh, America first. Now, I think he has a different uh, view of, uh, you know, what America first would mean in terms of foreign policy or in terms of, uh, you know, industrial policy uh, or uh, things like that. But nonetheless, it was quite striking uh, that uh, President-elect Biden felt the need uh, to telegraph uh, to the American public uh, that he's going to be thinking uh, first and foremost uh, about uh, what serves American national interests. Um, and, you know, given the, uh, you know, the rhetoric of uh, some of the liberal internationalists in the Democratic Party, uh, you know, that, that was sort of a, uh, a, a striking turn of uh, phrase. What else do you think, uh, you know, w whether the uh, Biden people will admit it or not, uh, are they going to uh, continue uh, from the Trump administration? For example, what about the uh, drawdowns uh, of additional forces in Afghanistan or Iraq? Do you think uh, Biden is going to uh, uh, plus up our forces there uh, on uh, the day after inauguration? 
Well, I would never want to speculate <laughs> on, on what a new administration uh, would want to go, do, uh, but you may want to uh, play, pay close attention to uh, what the, they are messaging through the idea that he's going to issue a whole series of executive orders uh, his first day in office. That, that will be interesting in terms of his view of governance in terms of you know, the, the country writ large. In terms of America first, I, you know, I never took it that Donald Trump was misusing that terminology. Uh, he's rough with his language, but when you see the implementation of that policy, I'm, for the most part, I, I think it was clear that what we have to do as a, as a country is to make sure that our preeminent uh, issues of the pre preeminent focus is on uh, America first in terms of national security, in terms of economic policy, in terms of you know, so many other issues. We have to take care of, if you don't take care of your family, how do you take care of your, your town? If you don't take care of your town, how do you take care of the country? I mean, that's really uh, really what that means. It doesn't mean we we abandon our obligations around the world. It means that when we put them into place, we make sure that we're following our own national security interests and uh, in terms of military policy and those sorts of things, acting in a way that best uh, does that. And, you know, I'm just looking forward to, to bringing a lot of people in and, and having discussions and get people who, who uh, are on different sides of these sorts of issues and, and having vigorous discussions. As you know, I mean, I, I served in the Reagan administration in, in the Pentagon, and I was a Democrat in the Senate. And I have uh, people that I, I admire on, on, in, in both sides of the, the political equation, and we want, we want to have a good and healthy debates. One of the things, by the way, I think would be interesting to examine would be how present policies, national security policies, sort of are skirting traditional uh, process. And this is, this is something that has grown over the last 20 years. And by that, I mean, things like uh, special operations forces, how are they used, you know, it's a, uh, the, 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 uh, and drones and remote assassinations, by the way, and black programs in, in, the, in the Pentagon and overseas. And not declaring war. When yes, this is war. exactly, you know, exactly where I'm going on that, where that all this is getting absorbed up into the executive uh, branch or over into the Pentagon and black programs and overseas contingency uh, operations or uh, blanket funding uh, from the Congress when they don't have to define where they're being used. And that's something that we've, we've gotten really lazy about because of the uh, incredible situation we were in after 9-11, and it just kind of went on autopilot. And why don't we get some people in talking about those sorts of things, as well as the, uh, the issues you and I have been discussing today? Yeah, uh, there is so much risk for our mill I think our uh, podcast agenda for the next two years uh, could be uh, easily uh, uh, filled up with uh, a deeper dive uh, into uh, a number of these uh, different issues. 
Um, well, we get some good people in here who aren't, you know. Are you saying we don't have good people are, with just you and me? I mean, well, <laughs> it's always nice, Mike. <laughs> but we also want to we want to bring you know different kinds of thought in here and have vigorous discussions. I think I think this will be good. Good, good. Well, Jim, uh, I can't tell you uh, how thrilled uh, my colleagues and I here at the Notre Dame. International Security Center uh, are to have you uh, on the masthead uh, with the rest of us. And of course, being on the masthead doesn't mean you're a moosehead because uh, you're involved in a lot of things that we're doing uh, already from undergraduate trips down to uh, the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare uh, Center at Fort Bragg to uh, helping us out with uh, classroom exercises uh, uh, for, uh, you know, classes we're uh, teaching the students. So uh, you bring uh, an awful lot to us uh, here, and uh, I couldn't think of a uh, better person um, as our uh, inaugural distinguished fellow. I also can't think of a better person uh, to uh, think outside the box, because Going back over your uh, biography before our session today, uh, it reminded me uh, how much of your uh, professional life uh, was spent uh, outside the box. Um, and I think that's a, uh, a good thing, because I think had you uh, wanted uh, a more traditional uh, career, uh, you could have had it as well, too. And uh, I think there should be more, more Jim Webbs of the world I'd feel a lot better about the uh, confirmation hearings for the new uh, cabinet appointments uh, if you were on the DS there uh, holding their feet to the fire. I can't think of uh, too many of the uh, current uh, 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 class uh, of uh, our elected representatives that I'd be confident uh, would really push, uh, not push in a partisan sense, but push in an intellectual sense to go back to first principles and say, hey, this is a new world. Uh, and uh, what about uh, how we engage with the world? Uh, do we need to uh, rethink um, in a major way? Um, well, you so know, I think one of the uh, one of the real values that we can bring to the national discussion is to bring people in and, and have the, you and I always good to talk to you, Mike, but also we can bring people in, have discussions that will encourage uh, creative thought in the governmental process. I can't, I can't, having been inside it, I can't tell you how valuable that really can be. And, you know, I think um, there, I think there might be some, some energy in these confirmation hearings and we can help contribute to it in a positive way. That's going to help the country. Well, I look forward to it, Jim, uh, as I look forward to uh, all of our uh, various, uh, you know, uh, conspiracies and uh, uh, collaborative undertakings uh, that uh, that we've had so far. Um, Me as well. and, and so uh, let's, uh, you know, uh, take a pause at this point um, and say welcome uh, to our first podcast. Uh, if you like this one, you're going to love uh, the subsequent ones that we've got teed up. So uh, welcome to uh, Outside the Box uh, with Jim Webb and Mike Desch. Thanks. Thanks.
If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.